Okay, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke 17. We finally made it to Luke 17, which is this huge milestone. Whenever we get through another chapter, it's like one year per chapter, and we're just racing through Luke. Uh, Luke 17. On the online news hour, March 20th, 2008, uh, two, there was a conversation between two uh, senior correspondents, news reporters, and they were talking about the uh, violence that had followed the election where um, in the aftermath of it all, about two, 250,000 people were basically made homeless and set to find lodging someplace they knew not. And this is part of the conversation that actually aired on TV. Jeffrey Brown. And finally, Margaret, what about the victims themselves? Some of the people that you profiled in your piece tonight. What do they tell you about what they would like to see happen to the perpetrators of this violence? Margaret Warner. You know, Jeff, that is one of the most interesting aspects of talking to these people. I've been very surprised. A great number of them said to me, I'm a Christian. I forgive them. That rose worker who still is afraid to go home to go back to where he lives. His four-year-old daughter is off with her mother in some remote village. He said, I'm a born-again Christian. I'm taught to forgive those who hurt me. And he said, I forgive them. I just want the Lord to help me get on with my life. And my attackers, well, they have families too. I heard, and I heard that from several of these victims. So there's no thirst for revenge in spite of all the violence. You do not have an entire society yet, at least here, that is bent on revenge against one another, end quote. I mean, how would you feel if, you know, at the end of the month, you were kicked out of your house and everything taken from you, your bank account seized and your business sacked and you were driven away with 250,000 other people in the area to walk to Las Vegas via Mojave with no water, barefoot. And knowing all that was going to come upon you and knowing that you might not even survive wherever you were going to end up, you, you, you're, you're fine with it. I mean, you're kind of like those people that the author of Hebrews speaks of in Hebrews 10:34, saying you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing you have for yourself a better possession and a lasting one. You know, there is something supernatural, something the world cannot understand when Christians live for the Lord. It's just otherworldly. It's so so radically different. It is a huge testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I was just thinking how, how probably little teaching and little, you know, resources a lot of these people have in Kenya. And yet, how many of us would have responded like that? When you remind yourself sometimes when somebody uh, sins against you, it's very hard to respond in a a God-honoring way, isn't it? I mean, I've talked to... Somebody says, amen. I've talked to people who who really were just angry and bitter at relatives. I'm never speaking to them again. And and you say, well, you know, you, you are a Christian. You do need to forgive them and... And, uh, you know, be reconciled to them. And, you know, they'll, they'll say things like, well, if they come groveling back on their belly, licking the dust, 
And they, they admit that it's all their fault. And I was all right. And they were all wrong. And maybe, maybe, maybe I might eventually forgive them. I mean, they don't say it quite that way, but that's what they're thinking. That's what they're thinking. And if you say, well, listen, you know, uh, but what about what the Bible says? You know, well, you're trying to encourage them with the scriptures. You know, Jesus said we need to forgive those who sin against us. And uh, and what's amazing was sometimes with just amazing deafness and clarity, they just run to Luke 17 verses one through four. Our passage. And they say, Jesus said, if they return and repent, then you forgive them. And so until they come, until they grovel, until they admit they're wrong, I don't have to forgive them. I find it interesting how some Christians won't read their Bible, won't study their Bible, won't meditate on the scriptures just to grow in the Lord and to get to know God better. But as soon as something comes up into their life where they want to justify some sort of carnal behavior, they search high and low through the pages of God's word to find that one verse they can twist out of context to justify their carnality. That is amazing to me. It's like finding a needle in a haystack and they find it. Well, as we come to our text this morning, we need to remind ourselves that Jesus has been kind of talking about money issues, but all the way back, he's had this dialogue. There's huge multitudes have followed him, you know, maybe tens of thousands of people. We're talking a lot of people. And among all of that huge mixed multitude are a bunch of scribes and Pharisees who who hate Jesus because he has exposed them because he's he's shown that their practices are wrong that they're leave, they're really hypocr- hypocrites who are leading others astray and so they don't like him they're basically kind of like you know yellow jackets at a picnic And so wherever you go and you're going to have a nice picnic, they're just buzzing around Jesus all the time, looking to sting him and bite him and fly down his shirt and, you know, just be an irritation. And so Jesus keeps swatting them away with kind of these verbal dialogues that he has with them. And so they're there. And then also Jesus is talking to his disciples and there's quite a few of them. We're not talking about just the 12, maybe, you know, several hundred of them. We don't know. We know that there's a lot of them. Um, Just even the women are described earlier in Luke as and many other women who were disciples. So we know that there's a lot of them. So this is what's happening. Jesus has at times dressed the crowd. Sometimes he's dressed the leaders. Sometimes he's um, dressed his disciples. And in our text, he is addressing the disciples specifically, but within earshot of the great multitude and the religious leaders. We need to realize also that um, as Jesus is doing this, the, the religious leaders, they just, they don't understand Jesus. It's like everything Jesus says, they're against. Have you ever had anybody like that in your life? Well, that looks white. It's black. Well, this is right. It's wrong. I believe this. I believe the other thing. You know, it's just like everything that they say. It's just there's an opposition. It's just everything's antithetical. And so when Jesus is teaching because he is teaching from God and because they are of their father, the devil, of course, we would expect that everything Jesus says, they have a problem with it. But Jesus, knowing this, actually kind of rubs it in. And he tells them the parable about the unjust steward and then praises the unjust, wicked steward for acting shrewdly. And this, they're like, no, no. And then Jesus kind of drives them to forks in the road and says, listen, if you're faithful little, you'll be faithful much. If you're unfaithful little, you'll be unfaithful much. And they don't want to go there. 
And then Jesus says, listen, you can only serve one master. It's going to be their God or money. Which will it be? They don't want to go there. They want to you know, have their money and God. And then he tells the parable of the rich man and Lazarus where the rich man who they thought were blessed by God because obviously the only reason you ever get rich is because of God's blessing. The rich man ends up in hell. And then the guy that they would despise because he is the beggar, he's poor, he's sickly, the dogs are licking his sores and he's outside the gate, you know. That guy who they thought, well, obviously God is punishing him because surely he's sinned and that's why he's sick. That guy ends up in heaven and not only in heaven, he sitting next to Abraham. And so they're just, they haven't, they're irritated with Jesus to say the least. Because everything he says just grates them the wrong way. And so this is the context of our passage. Jesus now turns to his disciples with an earshot of the religious leaders and this huge multitude. And he says this, Luke 17, 1 through 4. Follow along in your Bibles as I read. He said to his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the sea than he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times a day and returns seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Well, this text is often taught by itself uh, to address forgiveness. And you know what? It does address forgiveness. And it's a good text on forgiveness. But this, these first four verses are really a kind of a primer for what he's going to say. And we'll get there in weeks to come, Lord willing. But because so many people use this text to justify having an anger, angry, bitter, unforgiving heart, um, I thought we would just slow down here and go through it at a slow pace to address that. Because I've heard it so many times that it's really getting old. So from verses 1 through 4, I just want to lay out before you four necessary steps. We're going to look at the first three this morning for dealing with those who sin against you so that you won't have a sinful response in return, um, like anger or bitterness or unforgiveness uh, to those who sin against you. The first thing is, little ones, prepare to be sinned against. Look at verse 1. He said to his disciples... And again, we just said he's talking to his disciples. They're there. They're in front of him. So he's talking to them, but everybody else is listening in. And he says in the middle of verse 1, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks should come. Notice Jesus says it is inevitable. It's actually a word which by itself kind of means impossible. But here in this, this construction, it means impossible not to have happen. In other words, inevitable, um, bound to happen, certain to occur. He says, it is absolutely certain. It's like, you know, okay, if you're driving in the middle of the week at five o'clock on the freeways in Southern California, it is inevitable. You will hit rush hour traffic. I mean, it's, you know, it's happening. Okay. That's how it is. Okay. It's inevitable that stumbling blocks will come. So if you are, you know, a human being, get ready for it. Now, you know, there might be an exception if you were like, you know, your mother gave birth to you on a you know, tropical deserted island and then died in childbirth and you were raised by monkeys and never talked to a person, you might escape that. But if you're like the rest of us and uh, you have your own monkeys at home that you have to deal with, um, you're going to have people, stumbling blocks, come into your life. So it's inevitable. It's going to happen. Now, what does he mean by stumbling blocks? The Greek word is scandalon. The word we get scandal or scandalized from. It really describes uh, the trigger 
in a trap or a snare. It's called the bait stick. That's what it is. Uh, it's a bait stick. So there's bait wrapped around the stick and the stick then becomes the trigger of the trap. You get a branch, for instance, and you pull the branch down and you hook the tension line on it. The tension line goes to the bait stick. The bait stick is then set up with a little notch and a little, you know, Y-shaped stick dr- driven into the ground so that if anything touches that stick, it pops off. And then on the other end of the bait stick is the non-tension line which has a loop in it. And so whatever's standing in front of the bait stick gets snatched and pulled up off the ground. So that's the whole idea. Jesus is saying that it is inevitable that these people will come into your life, will try to draw you in and ensnare you into sin. Just, it's inevitable. It's going to happen. Now, with most sins, most sins offer some sort of pleasure, don't they? You know, some sort of payback. And that is the bait in the bait stick. And uh, I would just encourage you, if you like to read Proverbs, to just like read Proverbs through maybe a chapter uh, a day for a month and just try to see how many bait sticks you can find in there. There's a lot of them. Right off the bat, for instance, in, uh, in Proverbs chapter 1, verses 10 through 19, Solomon says this. Listen, listen to what Solomon says. He's warning his son and listen to all the things that they're trying to bait that this is the common thing, he says, that will come upon his son to bait him to sin. And he says this, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us light and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like shield, even whole as those who go down to the pit. And we will find all kinds of precious wealth. We will fill our houses with spoil. Throw in your lot with us. We will have one purse. You can see the bait there is what? Money. Money. He goes on to say, my son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path for their feet run to evil and they hasten to shed blood. Indeed, it is useful, useless to spread a baited net in the sight of any bird. But they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. Now, you see what Solomon's saying there? Son, listen. Even a dumb bird, when he sees the snare being set, doesn't go to the bait stick. So when somebody comes to you, be as smart as at least as a dumb bird (laughs) and don't go there. When they want to bait you into sin, you know, cuckoo, say, oh, no, Um, you know, get a clue. Even a bird knows not to go into sin. And so, you know what? We have people in our lives and sometimes they're well-intentioned and sometimes they're not, but they'll bait us to sin. And so at least be as smart as a dumb bird and don't go there. And when you read through Proverbs, you're going to find, you know, like the adulteress who flatters with her words and smoother than oil is her speech and her lips drip like honey. That's the bait. That's the bait. You'll find there's you know, money and, and wine and power. They're all talked about. All these things are talked about as things that people will bait you with to try and get you to go into evil. Don't go there. Don't go there. Now, there's another way that people bait us. Not only do they bait us with things that give us pleasure, but they bait us in a kind of a different way. And that is when they hurt you or they hurt other people you love. When somebody hurts you, then you are baited in another way, aren't you? Because you want to get revenge. You want to tell them a thing or two and give them a piece of my mind I can't afford to lose. 
You know, when, when people attack me or send me nasty letters, I never show them to my wife. Why? Because that would bait her. And so she thinks that everybody likes me. But we need to remember, you know, we need to let vengeance be God's and he will repay. And we can't be, you know, going around refusing to forgive people and kind of just being all bitter and angry and vengeful towards people. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Now, why? Why would you ever want to respond to anybody that way? Because they what? They hurt you or they hurt people you loved. Yeah. He says, instead, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. I think this is the sin that the disciples are being tempted to commit in our text. Why? Because they love Jesus. They've left everything to follow Jesus. They're following Jesus. Jesus is doing miracles. Jesus is teaching the truth. They're growing. They're loving it. They love Jesus. And then what happens? There's the yellow jackets. You know, the scribes and the Pharisees are attacking him and trying to trick him. And and they're just getting... and, And I think Jesus knows that they're probably getting a little irritated. And so he just says, let's remember, stumbling blocks will come. It's inevitable. They're going to come. Okay, just just relax and you don't have to respond in a carnal way. They're going to come. But before he addresses how how to we are to respond to stumbling blocks, he then says a little word to the stumbling blocks themselves. Our second point Stumbling blocks, be prepared to be judged. Look at the middle of verse one. But woe to him through whom they've come. The word woe means condemned under sentence of judgment, deserving judgment. And listen, you don't want to be under God's woe. All you have to do is a search of woe in the Bible, both in the Old and New Testament. It is not a good thing. It is like, it's it's kind of like picture yourself on the golf tee and God coming back. Okay, that's how it is. It is just God getting ready to just whack you with judgment. He, when he uses woe, that is a serious word of impending judgment and doom. Parents, let's just say, let's just say it's a beautiful Saturday and you're at home with your little chicklets and they're out playing in the yard and playing with their toys. And, and, you know, you're talking with your wife in the kitchen, making, you know, lemonade and you look out and there's this guy and he's reaching through the fence and he's giving your kids drugs. Now, would that make you mad? That would make you furious. But you know what? It doesn't make you as mad as it makes God when someone leads one of his children astray. We're talking some serious, serious judgment here. Look at verse 2. In order to just let us realize how serious it is to lead somebody into sin, Jesus just paints a little vivid warning. He says this, It would be better for him, the stumbling block, if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now just stop there. In a mill, there's two stones. There's the lower millstone, which doesn't have a hole in it. It's usually cupped out like a dish. Then there's the upper millstone, which is like a giant stone donut. 
We're talking big. And it has holes drilled into the side of it, usually so big uh, uh, logs could be stuck in there. And then horses or mules, or in the case of Samson, he pushed one of those. And in the center of this big donut is where the grain would be poured. And there were, the, there were grooves chiseled into two stones so that as it turned, it would grind the grain and the flour would be pushed out. So we're talking one of these huge, you know, concrete donuts, basically. And Jesus says, yeah, just think of having one of those around your neck and going for a swim in the sea. I mean, we're obviously talking about judgment. As a matter of fact, it's used of judgment in Revelation 18, 21, where we read the angel. uh, Then the strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. The whole millstone thing is a often used as a figure of judgment. But be sure to notice this little phrase that Jesus said here, it would be better. That is an important phrase. It would be better to have a millstone tied around your neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. What do the phrase little ones mean? The phrase little ones is a reference to believers. It appears multiple times in the Gospels and also in 1 John. Um, Little ones is four times in Matthew, once in Mark, and once here in our text. The phrase little children is used in John's Gospel and seven times in 1 John. And in every occurrence, it refers to believers who, because of their childlike faith and trust, rely upon Jesus completely for salvation. Let's say you go out to lunch, you know, today after church with a friend and, and you're having lunch and he says, hey, let's go to a movie. What do you want to see? Well, I want to go see this. Well, that's an R-rated movie. That's got a bunch of pornography in it. I'm not going to go see that. Oh, come on. He says, you know, I know there's some immoral scenes, but we're adults. We can handle it. Don't be a wimp, man. Come on. As soon as he gets the words out of his mouth, the SWAT team breaks in with machine guns drawn. Say, get on the ground. So he gets on the ground. It's like, don't shoot me. They handcuff him and they tell you, come with your friend. We're leaving. They go outside, they put you in a helicopter and they fly towards the coast and they fly out over the water and they fly out past Catalina Island out in the deep dark waters of the Pacific and there's this big ship out there and they land on the ship. They get you and your friend who's handcuffed out of the ship and they take you to the stern where they're the captains waiting. And you're just, you're just kind of like, whoa, whoa. They put this big steel cable around your friend's neck. And he's going, hey, 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 what's going on here? And then they take the other than the cable and they put it into this huge millstone. This big stone millstone there on the deck. And he, he says, what are you doing? He says, didn't you hear the sermon that Pastor Jack just preached? <laughs> he says, yes, with a trembling voice. But you were acting as a stumbling block, right? You're trying to lead somebody into sin, right? Yes, he confesses, but I had no idea that this would happen. And he kind of looks at your friend with kind of a doubting pity. Oh, so you thought Jesus was lying? And of course, your friend doesn't know what to say because he wants to say, no, I believe in Jesus. But obviously he did not. Otherwise, he wouldn't have done exactly opposite of what Jesus would say. So they look at him with resolve and say, you know what? We're going to do what's best for you right now. And we're going to do what's best for Calvary Bible Church. And we're going to do what's best for the glory of God. You're going down. So they hook that big thing. They lift it up by a big crane and they swing it out over the water. And the captain hits the button 
It releases the millstone. It jerks you off your feet. You're sucked down into the water and crushed in the black darkness below and die. Now keep that picture in your mind and then remember what Jesus said. That is the better thing. That is the better thing. As bad, as scary, as terrifying as that picture is that I just described, that Jesus describes in our text, it would be better to have that happen to you in this life than to lead one of God's little ones, a fellow believer, into sin. G. Campbell Morgan rightly says, quote, Our Lord did not say that the woe upon such as a one that they shall have a millstone hung hanged around their neck and be thrown into sea. That was not the woe. That is the way of escaping the woe, end quote. Drowning at sea with a millstone around your neck is the better thing, the preferred thing, the good thing, the easy way out. That is the better thing to have happen to you than you lead another believer into sin. I just want to say right here, Jesus is not excusing the sin of those who are tempted. If you're tempted and you fall into sin, that's your fault. Even though a stumbling block does it. The stumbling block is going to be dealt with because of his tempting you. You are going to be dealt with because of your own willing disobedience to God. R. Ken Hughes, in his commentary on this text, says, I have occasionally prayed with my pastoral colleagues. Lord, if one of us here is headed for adultery, take him home right now. Why? Because when you are a leader and people look to you as an example to follow and you fall into sin, some sort of sinful pattern, think about what that is. You become the great multiplied scandalon. And your bad example teaches the whole church how to rebel against God. I mean... It is serious. Hughes goes on to give examples in the culture of stumbling blocks saying, quote, intellectuals often directly assault Christian belief. You know, if you've been to a secular college, you know this. They just love to scoff at Christians. Criminal offenders regularly lead others headlong into sin. Icons of pop culture lure multitudes away from the truth and life. Even some within religious culture of faith pastors and teachers who engage in spiritual compromise lay huge stumbling blocks before the little ones people who are weak and vulnerable as they are being drawn to christ false doctrine is the primary stumbling block of these religious leaders and it is not limited to rank heresy but sometimes it takes the form of eccentric teaching legalism doctrinal imbalance all of which turn people away from simple faith in jesus christ end quote Listen, I don't care who you are. If you're leading somebody into sin right now, if you have led somebody into sin right now, if you're thinking of leading in somebody into sin, remember the millstone and choose that instead. It would be better for you if that happened to you. You need to confess that and stop it because you're putting your life in danger. And Jesus never kids about sin. He's deadly serious. Third, little ones, Keep rebuking. So Jesus says, okay, I want you to know it's inevitable. Stumbling blocks are going to come. Stumbling blocks, I want you to know, woe to you. It'd be better for you if you just jumped in the sea with a millstone around your neck than you lead somebody astray. 
And then he goes back to us and our response to these stumbling blocks when they do cause us to stumble or they tempt us to stumble. When they're trying to lead us away from God's will, what are we supposed to do? Look at verse three. Jesus says, be on your guard. Why? Because they're going to try and lead you astray. It's inevitable that they're going to come. So you've got to be on your guard always because they're always going to be there to lead you astray. They're either going to tempt you with some sort of pleasure or gain, or they're going to tempt you to an angry response because they were mean to you, unkind to you, slandered or gossiped you. Either way, you're going to be tempted to sin because of the actions and the words of other people. So you must be on your guard. And the first thing you do when someone sins against you by being a stumbling block is rebuke him. Look at the middle of verse 3. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Of course, this would apply to any sin, but here is the sin of being a stumbling block. When you are in the church, when you are a Christian, you have a responsibility, a command here before God to go to people who sin against you and rebuke them. And you know what? The word rebuke is a pretty hard word. You know, there's not really any way to make this word dull. You can't turn this into a butter knife. It is a sword word. It means to charge, to admonish, to sharply rebuke, to express strong disapproval. And there's just no way of getting around this command. This is a command to all of us to go to those that we see in sin who are stumbling blocks, or really in any sin, and to strongly firmly admonish, rebuke them and tell them this is wrong because the word of God says this. And this, of course, is one of those commands that's difficult to obey in the fruit of the spirit. You know, it's like, okay, now love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and stern warning. Um, They just don't seem to go well together, do they? And uh, so it's a, it's a very difficult to do this. And a lot of times, you know, if you think, how, how do we usually respond when things like this happen? If you think about your own life, I know I look at mine. One of the things is you want to hide, right? It's like, oh, I just saw that thing happen. I can't, if I confront that, oh, they'll get mad at me. It'll be a huge deal. They might yell at me. Might, you know, and the fear of man gets in the way, huh? So we, a lot of times we just kind of just, well, you know, I'll just turn a blind eye and a deaf ear towards it and just hope that God deals with them eventually. No, you are the instrument that God wants to deal with them. God wants you to be the instrument of their being dealt with. Another thing a lot of times we do when somebody hurts us or hurts those we love is we lash out in anger, right? To defend ourselves or to justify ourselves and tit for tat and, you know, you do this to me and I'll do this to you. And and that's just so natural, isn't it? That That is so normal. You hurt me, I'll hurt you. You cut into me, I cut into you. You know, that's kind of the gang member mentality. Third, sometimes we're tempted to gossip to others. This is like the worst thing, and this is the most common thing that happens. This is when, you know, we see something, and we know it's not right, so instead of going to that person, we... we um, Did you hear about so-and-so? I can't believe they did that. Yeah. And then we begin to throw around these little dainty morsels and we slander them. You know, I have people come up to me, Pastor Jack, I just want you to know, I saw so-and-so. I just want you to know, if you come and tell me that, you're going to talk to that person. If you say, hey, 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 I, I, you know, I don't want to talk to him. You're going to. And I'm going to call them in a couple of days to make sure you talk to them about this thing. And if you don't, then I'm talking to you. 
So I just want you to know it gets around and that's why people don't do that very much anymore. (laughs) But that's my response. If I know something happens, you're going to deal with it. You're going to obey God. It's like, well, I can't do that. Yes, you can. If you feel your brother has said something or done something against you, Henry Ironside says, don't talk about it to other people. Iron says, says, do not seek some sympathetic person uh, and pour your troubles into their ear, lest while he spread it through the church. If someone has offended you, do not tell it to anyone else. Go to him who has done the wrong and rebuke him for it. And if he repents, forgive him. Go straight to the one who has offended you. Tell him exactly what he has said, what he has done that is grieving you. That takes real manhood. Sometimes it is so much easier to go around muttering and talking to other people about offenses instead of going to one who has done the wrong and telling him what, what's on your mind. We are great for avoiding our own responsibility. We would rather pass it to someone else. We would rather bring the charge before the church. But Jesus plainly tells us, we now are to never bring the matter like that to the church until we have first gone to the person themselves for another thing uh, that that we might do is kind of become our own little volcano our own little mount vesuvius something does something to us and it kind of bothers us and at first we try to just ignore it and just going to forget about it and let somebody else deal with it and we might not gossip to anybody but it's really eating at us And pretty soon this internal pressure of emotion begins to build up. And then some little thing happens and then what? Eruption. We lava all over them. And so the cure is, is when something happens, you just, okay, Lord, I need to talk to them. In the fruit of the spirit and humility, you go to them and you bring it up. It doesn't matter how they respond. That's a whole separate issue. If they respond in an ungodly way, that's a whole different issue. Your job is to do what's right. Their job is to do what's right. But it's not your job to avoid doing what's right because you fear they might do what's wrong. Leon Morris in his commentary says, quote, This does not mean that we're going to adopt an attitude of censoriousness for the, uh, the context stresses forgiveness. It means that though he will be compassionate, he will not be weak. He cannot be indifferent to evil, but this does not mean that he will bear a grudge. So there's this whole idea of you're going to be compassionate, but you're not going to be weak. You're going to go to the person, you're not going to bear a grudge. Paul uses the same word, really, in 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, where he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, there's our word, exhort with great patience and instruction. You know, some people come to me and go, Pastor Jack, man, you are just, you're kind of a little intense. You know, you are just, you're, you're at us, you know, you're, you're, you know, I've, I've heard you teach at nighttime and at nighttime you're all laid back and laughing and, you know, but when we do preach, man, you're just like in our face, man. It's just like, I leave so convicted. And you know what? I am glad to hear that. <laughs> Why? Because I am under the command of God to reprove, rebuke and exhort. That is what God 
commands me to do. And if I don't do that, I'm sinning. I have to do that because that's what preaching is. And, and believe me, I mean, you know, you talk to any preacher, we would all love to get up here and just you know, throw marshmallows and feathers at you <laughs> and tell you you're a good person. I know you're rebelling against God, but praise God for his grace and love and just go out and do what you want. And I'd never want to, you know, do anything that might cause you to be convicted or want to leave your sin. I mean, after all, you're a good person and I'm a good person and God's grace is great and happy day. See ya. <laughs> I mean, that would be the easy thing to do. But listen, when somebody sins against you, you have to rebuke and rebuke is hard. It's not comfortable. You have to do it because it's right, not because it comes naturally and not because it's easy. It's a constant practice. It's a present active command. So you're always to be going through um, this process of of dealing with it. When people sin in the church, you, you just go to them in private, go, you know, brother, you know, sister, I saw this happen and, you know, maybe I had it wrong, but I was just thinking about the scriptures that say this and just wanted you to encourage you to, to do that. And, you know, they may clarify some things. You go, oh, I didn't know that. And, oh, well, it appeared this way. Or they might say, you know, thank you. You're right. I mean, I have my wife confront me a lot, you know, and um, I try to tell her, listen, I'm to preach to you and you listen. And, you know, it's not for me. And she doesn't go for that. She goes, no, you're eating your own sermons and uh, you're living them out. And you know what? I just I roll over and say, you're right. You're right. Uh, I shouldn't have, uh, you know, thrown the bomb at the neighbor's cat and um, whatever it is. You know, I just need to make sure that I'm doing the same thing and that I respond in such a way that anybody could come to me and talk to me and I would respond in a gracious way. That's my responsibility, not only to rebuke, but to receive rebuke. Proverbs twenty nine twenty five says the fear of man brings a snare. And that's really at the bottom line of why we don't obey this command. We fear men and we fear what they might do or how they might respond but i'm telling you there are some great benefits of rebuking because as soon as you realize i've got to do this what do you do you look at your own life i mean that is one of the cleansing effects you know sometimes the elders have to go you know confront somebody who's in sin they've been confronted once they need to be confronted again or a third time and you know we need to go to them and and so you know who wants to go do it and all the elders are kind of looking down hoping nobody sees them you know i mean it's not fun you don't want to go talk to somebody about their sin and and uh you know like you know you feel like the grim reaper coming in but you realize, you know what, this is good for the church, it's good for me, it's glory of God, the Bible says we need to do it. And so you go, and you try and go with humility, and it's not very fun. But I'm telling you, as soon as you realize you're the guy who has to go do it, you start looking at your own life. You start looking for any logs in your own eye. Because you realize, oh man, Lord, I am such a sinner, who am I to go to this guy? You're the guy who's been appointed. You're the guy who saw the sin. It's your responsibility. You've been elected by me to go deal with it. And so, man, you get out the chainsaw and clear the forest so that you can deal with the speck in your brother's eye. And that is a good thing for the church. It's good for you, and it brings glory to God. So as you leave here today, I would just warn you, stumbling blocks will come. If you are a stumbling block, woe to you. Remember the millstone, cease, desist, 
and turn to Christ for forgiveness. And for all of us, as we live as Christians who love each other and love the Lord, remember we have a constant responsibility that when we see sin in each other's lives, maybe even I even have people who are faithful enough to come to me and say, you know, I think that you ought to just be careful, you know, not to make cat illustrations or whatever. You know, I, I think, you know, people have come to me and saying, you know, I, hunting illustrations don't do it for me. So I quit doing them, you know, um, just I don't want to be a stumbling block. I want to be a stumbling block to anybody. And I'm thankful for that because I don't know. A lot of times I am blind to my own sin, just like you're blind to your own sin. So so when somebody comes to you and they seem a little nervous and a little chattery, don't take it as this person's trying to wreck my life. But take it as this person loves me like few other people do. And they're trying to do me good. And then receive that rebuke in grace and give glory to God. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your kindness and mercy to us. We are thankful that Christ has given us clear teaching warning us of stumbling blocks that are certain to come. And we know, Father, that uh, they will come and even a bird is smart enough not to walk into a snare once he sees the bait set before him in that snare. Help us to be smarter than dumb birds to avoid sin at all cost. And Father, if we are um, tempted by someone, if we are sinned against by somebody, may we take your instruction, go to them, rebuke them in all humility, looking to our own life, confessing our own sins, that we might do them good, that we might do us good, that we might do your church good, and we might give glory to Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.